Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could have edited that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Amplify Bookstore is an online bookstore dedicated to books by authors of colour. As people of colour ourselves, we found it really hard to find books by other people of colour in regular bookstores unless they were really popular titles. So, we started Amplify as a way to combat publishing's diversity problem and to amplify BIPOC voices in the industry. Find yourself on the page and diversify your bookshelf today at AmplifyBookstore.com and find us on social media at Amplify Bookstore. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. If you love listening to conversations with writers and learning more about their books, what they're reading and their past to publication, then you're in the right place. My name is Maya Linnell. I'm an author and I'm thrilled to be guest hosting today's podcast episode for the Words and Nerds podcast. I'll be talking with Australian best-selling author Sophie Green, who loves including lashings of nostalgia in her novels. Sophie's latest story, Thursdays at Orange Blossom House, was released by Hachette in July. She's also the author of the very popular Fairvale Ladies Book Club and the Shelley Bay Ladies Swimming Circle. It's set amid the lush beauty of tropical Queensland. Thursdays at Orange Blossom House is a heartwarming story of friendship and family, of chances missed and taken and the eternal power of love. Welcome to the podcast, Sophie. Thank you very much for having me, Maya. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the book, I'd love to know where you're talking to us from today. I'm in my home office in southwest Victoria. Whereabouts are you located, Sophie? I am on Barogagal land on the lower north shore of Sydney. At working, working from home, because I, I do have a day job, as we call it, um, so uh, working from home conditions in lockdown, yeah. So what does that look like with a book just hitting the shelves um, with lockdown? We've got lots of online launches, I'm assuming. 
Uh, not too many. Um, I did have quite a few events planned and they have all been cancelled, obviously. Uh, there was there was quite a bit to do in Queensland, cancelled. I was heading to the Riverina and Canberra cancelled. So um, I could spend time being upset about it, or, but I am a believer in just dealing with the circumstances that you have. This is this is how the book is coming out. Um, I'm also a great believer in saying that things are perfect. So whatever it is, it's perfect. So this is how it was meant to happen. And uh, as I said, I could spend time being upset, but I'm not because I have a book out and I'm so lucky to have readers out there who are, who will read it, um, who, who have already contacted me about it. So um, I'm not feeling at all sad. That's a fantastic attitude. I love the way that you look at that. It's all in the framing, isn't it? It is. It is, Yes. Now, um, would you like to share with us in a bit of a nutshell for people that haven't yet picked up beautiful Thursdays at Orange Blossom House with its gorgeous cover, and we'll talk more about that later, can you give us in a nutshell the, the outline of the story, please? Sure. It's uh, So the, the hub of the connections in this story is actually a yoga class um, taught by a French woman called Sandrine. I am a yoga teacher, have been for well, about 20 years. Uh, and so Sandrine is the only character I've ever written who says anything that I might say, basically, because everything she says is something I've said in class. But she's actually not one of our main characters. Um, we have three main characters, are Grace Maud, who's in her 70s, Patricia, who's in her 40s, and Dorothy, who's in her 30s. Grace Maud has um, run a cane farm on her own with help from her son once he grew up. Um, so she's a bit of a tough nut because she's had to be. Uh, Patricia is a teacher who's in her, as I said, in her 40s. She's moved back to far north Queensland to take care of her elderly parents because her two brothers and sister are too busy with their own lives. And Dorothy and her husband, run a cafe and uh, Dorothy's been trying to have a baby but having no success and that is distressing her greatly. So all three of them are somewhat alienated from themselves and going to the class starts to become a way where they can reconnect with themselves and then connect with other people. And I thought it was so well put, that beautiful... Um the contrasting characters, they're very strong and very independent in their own ways, aren't they? But they mm. certainly have their vulnerabilities. And, um, you know, perhaps if it weren't for this beautiful yoga class, they may never have crossed paths. Yeah, well, they no, they wouldn't have because uh, I do think we meet so many different types of people when we have an activity in common. Um, I met my best friend playing tennis. We, we were met in a group tennis class and then we spliced off and started playing against each other. We still play against each other every Sunday morning at 7am. Um, and that's, I don't, we love it. We don't want to play with each other. We want to play against each other. Um, and I wouldn't have met her otherwise. And that sometimes blows my mind because we're so close. But, uh, and that was a fairly recent friendship that's only been in the last few years. Um, but no, so the three women in the novel wouldn't have met each other um, otherwise, even in a, in a relatively small town or city, uh, you don't cross paths with too many people outside of your own existing connections, I think, unless it's through a job or, or through an activity. I think, I think that's answered the question. I'm not <laughs> I tend to yeah. ramble so you can stop me. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think you do this so well um, with your previous two novels, which I've also loved, that really nice link of bringing um, women together through something that, you know, they find so enriching that possibly they aren't trundling along to by their own free will at first and then it becomes a, a habit and then becomes something that they absolutely love. How do you have that? 
how do you choose which beautiful common thread is going to bring them together for each book? So we had the swimming circle in the mm. second book and the, the book club in the first story. Um, what is it that you've said, this book, I'm going to do this wonderful yoga class? Was it being a yoga teacher? It was. Uh, and... Uh, I mean, I've been practicing now almost for 30 years and I have, uh, and as I said, teaching for almost 20 and I've, I have made so many interesting connections, not necessarily lasting connections, but interesting connections throughout that time. I've had opportunities to go places, meet people that I wouldn't have otherwise met because of my practice and, and because of being a teacher, but more, I, I actually think more being a student, um, that's where most of my connections have come from. Um, and there's, I was exchanging text messages with someone this week who I met two years ago um, when my teacher or both of our teacher came out from the United States to Sydney and we had 10 days studying with her and we just happened to meet halfway through it and now we're friends. So it does happen and yoga can bring together people at points in their lives often when they are looking for something. As I like to say, it's not an exercise class Strictly, people wouldn't come to it if it was just for exercise. They're looking for something else. So normally when people arrive on the mat for the first time, they are seeking something. And as the years have gone on for me, what, what I'm taking from the practice has changed. Um, but I still arrive on that mat every time, open to the adventure, shall we say. And I think we could all do with a beautiful yoga teacher like Sandrine with her beautiful, wise wisdom. Um, I love the snippets that she said and hearing that those are things that you would say in class as well. It just uh, gives you that beautiful, warm feeling that there's a real advocate for these characters and, and the journeys that they're going on and that strength that they need. I think that's lovely. Well, thank you. Well, it is, it's a big responsibility being a teacher um, because, as I said, people are usually arriving on the mat with something in mind um, or, or something often they can't articulate. They just know they're looking for something or they want something to shift. It's often about change. They often want um, some, some, something in their life to change or um, stop or start or whatever it is. And so as a teacher, I always feel that I have to hold that <clears throat> space and experience for them so that they feel safe doing their own work. I'm not there to do the work for them. I'm there to guide them through whatever is going on and towards something that they need rather than something that they might think they want. Mm. Oh, that's wonderful. I think it's articulated perfectly in that camaraderie inside the class when, you know, there's some noises that come out or whether someone breaks <laughs> down in tears. Um, I think anyone who has been at a yoga class and, and really given themselves into that process can really resonate with that. I'm sure mm. that will be absolutely loved. Thank you. What type of feedback have you had from the novel so far, Sophie? Uh, well, it's been early readers who, um, who have had review copies for blogs and things like that, and, uh, and some of them are people who've read the last two books. So I was, you know, it's always a nervous time, as you would know, when a, when a new book goes out into the world, but thankfully they've all felt as positively about this one as they did about Shelley Bay. So, um, so that made, makes me very happy I'm like yes I think happy again still the nervousness is there but uh I'm writing for people I'm not writing for myself if I was just writing for myself no one would ever see it so um so I'm very happy if the people who are reading it um are having a good time basically 
And it seems to have a real far and wide appeal as well. Your books will pop up in so many different conversations they'll have. Yesterday, I was at a library event in Hamilton and someone said, Sophie Green's got a new book out. This is in the um, conversation after the author talk. And I said, I'm actually interviewing Sophie tomorrow. And then we went to collect some lambs from a friend um, earlier on, some little orphan lambs, and the lady goes swimming um, at the crack of dawn, freezing o'clock in the middle of uh, southwest Victorian's winter. And I said to her, I think you'd really like this book by Sophie Green called um, The Shelley Bay Ladies Swimming Circle. And she said, oh, I've read it. I've bought it. I've bought it for my sister who comes swimming with me. So it pops up all over the place. I keep, um, you know, not just hearing about it, but seeing it in lots of different circles, which I think is a great thing. Uh, well, yeah. And thank you so much for telling me because, of course, I don't know um, all of those sorts of um, stories. And I know that... that uh, I, what I found out with Shelley Bay is that more people go swimming than I realised because <laughs> I swim and I swim in salt water but I don't swim in the surf because I live near a harbour beach and I am, I'm swimming throughout winter. I have a wetsuit. I don't know that I would swim in Victoria uh, because I think it's, it's cold enough here where I'm swimming. But uh, and I look, part of the inspiration for that novel came from seeing the number of people swimming and also the little groups that would form on the beach and they'd chat away and I think, oh, this is interesting. Um, but I have been really uh, pleasantly surprised by how many people have, have emerged saying they swim regularly and swim with friends because that was just an idea I had that maybe that was going on. So. I, I think you really tapped into something there. I think it's like a cult thing that people that do <laughs> have that bravery to get out in the middle, in the freezing winter to go and swim. They mm. certainly appreciate uh, the fact that, you know, it's a very honourable thing to do and, and very brave. <laughs> yes. Yeah. As I said, more brave than I would be at this time of year. The Sydney water is cold enough for me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now, um, We've got the the Grace Maud is one of the main characters, the cane farmer, and she's a twin. And I loved that relationship between Grace Maud and Ellie Maud. And, and I also thought it was quite amusing with the names being so similar. Did you fall down a rabbit hole of research looking into twin dynamics? Um, I know that there's so much fantastic psychology into the connection between twins because I've written a twin and, and had a wonderful time looking at all these different problems that twins can have and also that closeness. Um, do you have twins in your life or is it something that just uh, that, that appealed to you? I think I've gleaned quite a bit of information over the years about twins, but there are two sets of twins um, I know who are, who are in childhood at the moment, um, one identical set, one fraternal set. So, yes, um, and, the, and the, because Grace Maud and Ellie Maud are identical, the identical set I know was certainly a bit of an inspiration for that relationship just because I've seen their dynamic. Um, but the fraternal ones, so and they're girls, and then the fraternal ones are boys. So that's a different dynamic slightly again. Uh, and yes, on the names, um, I Grace Maud came to me as Grace Maud. I was quite determined to um, that she would not be Grace Maud. I thought oh, I can't be bothered typing two names. <laughs> Grace didn't work. I tried it as Grace. I was like, this is just not who she is. She's going to have to stay as Grace Maud, and I have to find out why. And it was because she was a twin, and her twin was Ellie Maud. Oh, that's perfect. That's lovely. When people start reading the story, they'll really get wrapped up into that beautiful, beautiful dynamic between the twins there. Now, the North Queensland setting, I thought, was a character of its own. And given that so many people are in lockdown at the moment or <laughs> facing border restrictions, it's probably as close as we're going to get to a tropical holiday anytime soon. Mm -hmm. How did you choose your setting for this book? 
it was actually a suggestion by the publisher and that uh, can happen that uh, uh, in talking about these stories that they sometimes have input. I had wanted to set something in Queensland. I thought it would be the Sunshine Coast, which I know very well. Um, I have been to Far North Queensland a couple of times, maybe even more, <laughs> I've lost track. Um, and, uh, and it was so beautiful the first time I went, I just thought, oh, this place. Um, and I have been to the Northern Territory a few times, but it's, the parts I've been to are different to what I've seen around Cairns, just in terms of the, the lushness and the tropicality around the coast, I guess. Um, and so I just thought, look, the daydreaming of it, being able to sit in Sydney think about that landscape. I, I was so hoping I'd be able to go, but border restrictions meant that there was just no point at which I could go there. Um, still, I just got to daydream, which was very pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone likes that idea of a beautiful escape, even if they're sitting at home in their armchairs and reading. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of beautiful things, the covers of your stories, Sophie, right from that very first one, there was a certain look that your publisher was obviously going for when they designed that book cover and, and by geez, it stuck out on the shelves and each of them have been also beautiful. Have you been really thrilled with each of the covers as well or is it just from everyone else looking at them going, oh, what a gorgeous cover? No, I was I was so thrilled with Fairvale, um, and this, and the cover designer is a woman called Krista Moffat, who does a lot of book design in this country. And uh, so, Christabella Designs is her company, and um, she's just got a great sensibility for books for that readership as well. So, with cover design, it's often a question of of reaching the right reader. Um, it's not hanging on to a piece of design just because it looks great. It's actually thinking, how is this functional? Because the cover does have to do a lot of work. And Krista has obviously, that template for Fairvale worked and they have, have remade it in different ways, but, but it's quite recognisably a similar template. And I look, the current one, Orange Blossom House, is just so beautiful. When I saw it for the first time, I just thought, oh, when, I, when I saw the finished book, because it was on a proof copy first with no um, bells and whistles, and then when the finished copy arrived, just thought, oh, this is stunning. She's outdone herself. <laughs> I think they would look so nice sitting together in your bookshelf at home. They would just, just look really pretty all together, the three of them. If only I actually displayed them that way, they're just shoved into because I actually I've only end up with one copy of each because the others all go. So and usually if I'm doing events, that one copy comes around with me and ends up quite battered. So they're just kind of shoved into the rest of my shelves and I, they are not displayed. Maybe I you should. might have to fix <laughs> that. <laughs> Now, going back to the actual um, publishing side of things, there's very obviously, you know, you have quite an inside knowledge into that. For the people that aren't familiar with your background, you work in publishing as well. Can you mm -hmm. speak a little bit about how you got into the publishing industry and what your current role involves, Sophie? Sure. I'll give you the, the potted history. Um, so I actually I, I studied law um, at university and while I was at university for five years, I worked in a bookshop. And when I finished my degree, I went to Vancouver, BC for a year, worked in a children's bookshop, came back and uh, applied for a legal job in a publishing company, and I didn't get it, but they offered me an editorial job. And that's, that started the path. And I thought, oh, well, that probably suits me better anyway because I don't like contracts. Uh, <laughs> and um, I... Um, uh, so I was a baby editor for a while. I actually worked in online for a while. I went to the Seven Network when one of my jobs was running the home and away website so that, so and i and 
interviewing a very young Ian Thorpe was my day three of my job. I had to very suddenly interview Ian Thorpe, who was there on work experience. That'll tell you how long ago that was. Uh, and then I went back into publishing and as an editor, I was an agent for a few years. And then I came to um, Ashet as a nonfiction publisher at the end of 2014. So I publish nonfiction and write fiction. So I quite like having that balance. I love nonfiction. I love publishing nonfiction because it's a very creative side of publishing because I get to come up with ideas and um, create books uh, for some of the books. And then some of them are books that come to me. So there's always something different and interesting. Uh, in nonfiction, you often don't have authors who write more than one book. So it's constantly changing. Uh, but it is, I think it's all the same job in a way being a writer being a publisher because it's all about creating books for people where and I often talk about local publishing as the manufacturing division because we are <laughs> manufacturing something out of nothing out of an idea it starts as an idea and we end up with this artifact in our hands and every single time it happens I think this is amazing all these people who are involved we've got this thing that we can hold it's got words on the page it's been printed it's got a cover it's going out into the world I think it's wonderful and everyone involved is passionate about what they're doing. So it's a, it's a really lovely industry to be in and I'm really privileged to work with a lot of people who are very passionate and experienced and skilled at what they do. And I'm definitely picking up a lot of passion for that from you as well. It's really nice to see that enthusiasm for your work. I bet you probably get up in the morning and think, I'm living such a great life. I've got, you know, things are humming. I've got books published. I'm publishing books. And you also do ghostwriting as well, or you have done ghostwriting, Sophie. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. That was a while ago. Um, although, you know, when you when you work in nonfiction, there's often a bit of tinkering involved. But, uh, but ghostwriting, look, it's not... Again, I think it's part of the continuum because you have you're taking on someone else's voice and wanting to make sure that that the book represents them. And I think as a novelist, it's a similar thing. I'm taking on a character and making sure that that they're being presented to the reader in a way that the reader can understand who they are. So I think that skill set um, is very close. And uh, it is, and it's it's also related to being an editor in that when you're editing a book, you need to put yourself aside and think about what the author would intend in that situation so it's a it's a it's almost like channeling which sounds a bit boo but uh it is almost like channeling the author when you're editing to make sure that you can stand in their stead and and polish whatever is there to make sure and it's usually just a light polish but just to make sure that the author's intention is clear is that really um tricky to be on the other side of the coin as being the author you know, I think if I worked in publishing, I'd be checking the book scan stats constantly and saying to marketing, look, what have we got coming up next? I think, um, you know, personally, I'd have a hard time separating the being the author at, because uh, it's, a, is it the same house that you're working for as well yeah. as published within? Yeah. Um, it's one of the reasons why I have separate email addresses <laughs> for, <laughs> for both, um, because that, that separation of church and state is handy. And I know enough to know that what my colleagues do not want is the author popping up every five <laughs> seconds saying, what are you doing? Why hasn't that happened? And I also know enough to know how things work. Um, I know how distribution works. I know how book selling works because I was a bookseller. Um, I do understand about marketing and publicity because I worked at Seven and that's that was our job, basically promoting the network and the shows. So I do, on, I do know enough about all of that to, to not meddle. Um, <laughs> I don't think I meddle. And also 
my publisher keeps me very well informed. So it's not like I'm sitting in the dark wondering what's going on. That's fantastic. That sounds like a great arrangement and uh, very restrained on your behalf. (laughs) Now, after your years in publishing and book selling, Sophie, can you tell us one of the most unusual things that's happened, um, you know, that you've seen throughout that journey? Uh, I think when I when I was a bookseller, one of the most unusual things was how some people behaved in bookshops. Oh. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was always, I can still remember one customer, and obviously this has stayed in my mind because it was so long ago, and she came in looking for something to read. And I said, okay, uh, what do you like to read? I don't know. Do you like to read crime novels? I don't know. Do you read literary fiction? I don't know. What was the last thing you read that you liked? I can't remember. And so then I thought, okay, I was trying to, and being part of being a, a bookseller in an independent bookshop is trying to form that connection with the reader to make sure you can give them something that they want. So I was, kind of, I was getting a sense of who I thought she might think she was as a reader. So I led her towards a particular stand of books we had, showed her something, oh, no, I would never read that. And so this went on for a while. By a process of elimination, I did actually find her something to read, but I just remember thinking uh, to come in and say, I want something to read and to be so firm about not knowing what you wanted to read. It was a very interesting experience for me as the bookseller. Absolutely, and that's why we are so thankful for all the beautiful bookstores that do keep going day in and day out, dealing with different Mm -hmm. customers and, and selling our books and matching the right book with the right reader. I think it's the fine art. It really is, and it does come from that relationship that so many booksellers have with their customers and the customers trust them. Certainly when I was a bookseller, uh, the woman who uh, owned the shop, there were some customers who would not take any of our recommendations. They only wanted to talk to her. If she walked into the shop in the middle of us talking to them, they would abandon us immediately and go and talk to her. We would stand there going, well, we read too, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) very good now writing can be a really solitary occupation um you know lots of time alone at your desk lots of thinking time brainstorming time do you have a writing group that you write with Sophie or do you catch up with um writing friends to kind of um have that creative connection no um it's the short a very short um terse answer um look I'm not someone who likes team sports Uh, I'm uh, (laughs) so swimming tennis these are things one does on one's own. I know that about myself um, and I've known it since I was a child. So um, given that I'm not someone who enjoys team sports, I have never attempted to be part of a writing team. And uh, I have um, my best friend who I mentioned, she reads drafts. My mother reads it. My agent reads it. That's it um, when things are done. And then my agent will give me feedback before I submit it and I'll rework and send it in but that's that's the extent of um, external influence shall we say well that's fair enough I think they come together beautifully with whatever you're doing I think it's definitely hitting the mark oh thank you (laughs) now there are many different paths to publication and lots of aspiring writers tune into the words and nerds podcast can you share some of your top tips for writers who are looking to get published I think the biggest um, mistake we see is uh, impatience um, in writers in that um, they'll submit too early and then they become impatient about receiving an answer. So what I would encourage anyone who's writing to do is to be patient with themselves, be patient with their work. Remember that they are the best advocate for their own work and they why wouldn't they give it the respect and time and consideration 
um, that it deserves. So if they've put a lot of effort into writing a manuscript, don't just dash it off as soon as it's finished, you know, um, or you, you might put it aside for two weeks and think, oh, I'll just do a few little, I'll correct some typos and send it off. Particularly when it's your first one, take your time, consider the fact that it may be your apprenticeship manuscript. It may not be the one that gets you published, um, but that also comes back to being patient. So if, if you really want to be published, that is your stated ambition and goal, then it's, a, it's play the long game, basically, particularly if it's fiction, because ideally that is something in which you're being published regularly. It's not just a one-off. So you should take the time, give yourself the time to become the writer who can be published regularly, because if you do end up being published, that publisher is going to turn around pretty quickly and say, what else do you have? So you need to be in a position where you have practices in place where you can produce regularly. Um, and a lot of that is also um, to come from a place where it's not about you. It's actually about connecting with readers. It's about serving the story that you're presenting. Uh, it's, it's taking it out of that sense of I want, I need, um, whether it's recognition you want and need or you just attach to the idea of being published. It's actually inhabiting the role of the storyteller, telling stories to someone else, and that's, that is who you're serving. Um, and if you can shift that perspective on it, uh, then things tend to change around it. But yeah, as I said, impatience is the number one problem. I think that's some really sage advice because I do, I know of plenty of different writers who are so, so impatient and so excited to get published, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily help their chances. No. In fact, I think in, in no percentage of, of uh, cases does it help their chances because <laughs> so, it takes time. It's a, it is a... It is a real skill and it's something, you know, I'm a musician. Um, I play a couple of instruments. I sing. I do not expect to ever have a recording contract. I don't want one. Um, I, I play those instruments and sing for my own enjoyment. I was in a band a while ago. It was fun. I don't want to be in a band at the moment. Um, but a lot of people will write and attach to writing all this, this weight of, oh, well, if I'm not being published and the writing's not worth anything. The writing is inherently worth something as soon as you start writing. Uh, and it could be a piece of writing just for you or that you show a friend, doesn't matter. That piece of writing doesn't need to be loaded up with all of those expectations. So also consider the fact that you can write something and have it just for yourself, and that may be your apprenticeship piece of writing and you move on to something else. But the piece of writing that is destined for an audience is going to be very different to something that you're writing just to either satisfy your own curiosity that you can do it or because you think you have an ambition that you want to get published in your writing because you think that'll get you published. Take the pressure off the writing you're doing. Um, don't load it up with everything straight away. There will be a lot of people that really appreciate that type of advice, Sophie, <laughs> because it's, you know, right from the inside of the industry. So it's um, very pertinent. Just going back to the actual story as well, I wanted to ask you about those beautiful bits of read throughout the book that are little pieces of history, little snapshots. As I read this one, having been you know in high school and primary school in the 90s I loved the different ones oh yes here's you know Nirvana's released this record and the different little snippets were just beautiful how did you choose which bits to put in uh, well because we had so it's a device that I've used in the previous two books but in Fairvale it was by year and that was historical events in Shelley Bay it was just the marking of the seasons um, in this one I thought oh I'll just combine <laughs> the idea of uh, I did my research on things that had happened that year I looked into popular songs movies released tv shows all that sort of thing and then thought about the readership 
and what would resonate the most with them. So there was a sprinkling of some Australian cultural content and some overseas things and and also thinking about the 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 world events that that people would remember or that would have resonated with them at the time so yeah the 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 list when I started was very long and then it was just a process of picking out what I thought would work the best they delighted me each time I got to one of those sections just skimming through those it was like a little trip down memory lane it was great And there's also, I think there was one, there's one in there about Seinfeld, which switched networks after its first season. So, and I was putting it in thinking someone's probably going to say to me, Seinfeld was on 10, because I've put in there that Seinfeld started on the nine network because it did, and then it didn't do very well and 10 snapped it up. So even going back to that sort of thing, it, it was, it was interesting for me. I had a good time researching. <laughs> Um, and speaking of good time, you also blog um, and you, mm. country music is your passion there. How does mm. that um, fit into your world? Uh, look, I don't think I'd be writing fiction without having written about country music first. Um, I started that, well, I started the blog over a decade ago, but I started writing in earnest a decade ago. And uh, so my experience at Seven and before that I worked on a, on a music magazine in Canada interviewing artists so all of that gave me the skill set to draw from to start writing about Australian country music. So the band I was in, we were a country music band. We played in Tamworth. I was actually anti-country music at the time I joined that band. It was a friend's band. I thought this will be fun. Ew, country music. And then we went to Tamworth and my brain exploded with delight and expansion because <clears throat> the quality of the music that was there was so fantastic. And the, the breadth of styles and, and the camaraderie between the musicians. So I started listening to a lot of Australian country music and uh, it was therefore a very easy subject for me to write about. And once I started writing in earnest, I just contacted some publicists to get some interviews. Um, I'm actually doing an interview later today. Um, so 10 years later, still doing it very regularly. Um, and that practice of writing about something that's quite hard to describe, which is the experience of listening to music, um, and also interviewing artists, finding out, uh, trying to tell their story through that interview. I think all of that set me up very well for writing fiction. It was also writing knowing there was an audience there because I, because it's a blog I can see if people are reading. And so once I started to have a few readers, I thought, oh, gosh, people are paying attention. I need to, I need to write to whoever's out there. Um, and a lot of the time it is other artists, um, so all of that trained me really well, I think, and, and still, um, still helps keep the instrument sharp because I'm still writing minimum of two posts a week, uh, whether it, I haven't done interviewing for most of this year, but it's usually single releases, album reviews. And these days I don't ask anyone to, if I can have a CD or whatever it is, the publicists send me stuff. So that makes it a bit easier. I don't have to go out and chase. Fabulous. And how can people find your country music blog, Sophie? So it's called Sunburnt Country Music. Uh, so sunburntcountrymusic.com or if you just Google Sunburnt Country Music and it's that on Instagram as well. Um, so that and that's got the links in if someone finds me on Instagram. And, uh, yeah, it's I used to do the, the occasional British and American artists, but it's purely Australian with the odd New Zealand artist now because there's just so much for me to cover. I just thought, why am, why am I doing these foreigners? <laughs> to focus on the home talent. And uh, for anyone who's new to Australian country music, I 
really encourage or doesn't know much about it. There's such great storytelling, great musicality um, and great variety in that genre. And we ha have a ton of fantastic artists. It's also the only genre of music in the world, as far as I can tell, where there's equal representation from female artists. So in Australian country, it's when you go to Tamworth, it is very clear that it's evenly spread. No one thinks twice about it. Um, the women are just there often at the top of the charts on a regular basis. So that's another aspect why I love it and why I think it's important to support it. I think so too. Look, I used to host a country music radio show um, ah. back in the day, a long time ago in a community radio station. And yeah. I was the same. I was, um, you know, quite down on the idea of country music until I actually sunk my teeth into modern country music. And right. it's a whole different ball game, isn't it? To, um, yes. you know, some of the Kenny Rogers and Willie Nelson and things like that, that you kind of think of your dad's form of country music is a hell of a mm. lot different to what you can find on the, uh, the records these days. Absolutely. Um, the artist I'm interviewing later today is Amber Lawrence, who's Golden Guitar winner, and I've interviewed her a few times before. Amber is an incredible songwriter. Like she just, she's a great performer, but she just finds these little nuggets of stories to tell. And um, and I've said to her in the past, she's one of the only songwriters who can make me cry on a regular basis. <laughs> and it will be the same songs over and over again. Like, Amber, how do you do this? <laughs> so, and she's just one. There are, you know, Fanny Lumsden, Catherine Britt, the McClymonts, there are such fantastic songwriters and performers. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I was going to ask you for a book recommendation and an album recommendation. Would you be able to hit <laughs> us up with some Aussie book and music recommendations? Certainly. I'll do the album first since we're, um, since we're on it. Um, so in the recent, of recent releases, um, so Fanny Lumsden's Fellow, which won the ARIA for Best Country and lots of golden guitars, and Fanny is um, a really interesting artist. Um, I could go on at length about her, but uh, I really recommend um, listening to any of her albums, but Fallow is the most recent. Uh, an artist called Jasmine Ray, who, who was very country pop, country rock, and then last year released an album called Lionside, which is phenomenal. She was shortlisted for an aria, the golden guitars. Um, Lionside is just this really rich, satisfying album and also last year Luke O'Shea is there in the Oka. So Luke, um, our fan favourite, again, multiple golden guitar winner, great character and there in the Oka is a really lovely collection of stories, sometimes hard-hitting. I mean, Luke is a um, school teacher and I think he... I think educating his his listenership is something that he does really well and not to, in not too heavy-handed a fashion. So those are my three, Luke O'Shea, Jasmine Ray and Fanny Lumsden. Um, Book-wise, I have Nardi Simpson's Song of the Crocodile. Um, so Nardi was long-listed for the Miles Franklin with this book and it is just a, it's a multi-generational I think, I mean, I don't think it's too big a word to say epic about it um, because Nadi is also a musician, probably not a coincidence. So she's a member of the Stiff Gins. Some people may know the Stiff Gins. Um, and so her musicality comes through in her language, her storytelling background through music. This is her first novel, but she is writing um, another. And uh, there's just a lot in there. She's a Yuwalari um, um, writer, so there's a lot in there about her culture, her country, and um, things that have happened to Aboriginal people over the years. But it's just a really engrossing, fascinating, beautiful book. Excellent. The Song of the Crocodile. I have seen that around. I haven't quite picked it up yet, but good to hear it's, um, it's a real winner. 
Yeah. Now, I know there'll be lots of readers, Sophie, who'll be looking forward to your next warm and heartfelt stories. Can you tell us what is coming up next for you? Are you working on something new? I actually have already delivered it for next year. So, uh, and music is at the centre of that one. So I thought it was logical. Um, to, I'm just working through things I have have a hobby in I guess uh but it's not country, it's not about country music it's um uh it's about a choir so oh that sounds interesting <laughs> can we get the yeah. inside scoop on where it's going to be set or is that it will be set no no it's oh, I haven't been told I can't talk about it so it's just you're the first person <laughs> to ask Maya so Wonderful. um it's it's uh, Shelley Bay is a fictional place but it's clearly set in Sydney um so this is another fictional place though I make it clear it's set in the Liverpool Plains area so it is near Tamworth um but it's a fictional town and it's between Corinda and Tamworth uh, this fictional town and um it was just easier that way I thought about setting it in a real place and I thought particularly for country towns that can be loaded because they're the people who live in the real place <laughs> start to think well hang on that person didn't live here at that <laughs> time and uh so yeah that's that's where it is that's what it's about wonderful you heard it first here on words and nerds podcast guys thank you sophie now thursdays at orange blossom house it's out now in all good bookstores in paperback you can also listen in on audiobook or you can read it on ebook tell us where people can find you online as the author sophie green so uh on facebook as uh, I've actually can't remember my Facebook handle. I think it's Sophie Green Books, <laughs> and um, and on Twitter is Sophie Green Auth because the Twitter handles have to be a bit shorter. So, uh, yeah, look, I'm not. I I I don't spend a lot of time on social media because between a day job, blogging about country music and writing, I don't have a lot of time to be on social media. But I will always respond to comments and messages. So if people wish to contact me, I will be there. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today, Sophie. I've really loved our chat. A huge thanks to Danny for letting us hijack the Words and Nerds podcast today. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Leave a review, head to your bookshop and grab yourself a copy of Thursdays at Orange Blossom House. Look forward to talking to you with next book, Sophie. Thank you so much, Maya. And thanks for reading the book and taking such an interest. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. We'd love to engage with you on social media. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Danny V Books, Words and Nerds podcast. You can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and read more books.